it's a real pleasure to be here to be able to open God's Word together. And like Vath said, we're back after having had a bit of a bit of a break for a few months in our Luke series, and uh, we've been <laughs> for the last 13 years, probably more like a year and a half, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, which, uh, for those of you who are not particularly familiar with your Bibles, is uh, basically it's the story of Jesus' life, well, of his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. So it kind of gives you the whole picture. And we've been making our way through that relatively, relatively slowly. But um, we're back in there today and we're, uh, we're going to be in Luke 21. So for those of you who have Bibles and uh, whether that's on your phone or in physical form, uh, if you could open Luke 21 and uh, we're going to be, so we're picking this back up and we're going to be going for the, what, is, what is kind of the, the period of Lent. Some of you who may be a bit more familiar with the Christian calendar may know that we're now in the period of Lent, which is a 40-day period that then climaxes with Easter. And so we're going to finish the series on Luke on Easter Sunday. It's almost like someone actually planned that. Um, sorry, joke. Um, but we're going we're to climax with the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, which is going to be amazing. And, um, but today we're in Luke 21. And uh, to be honest, Luke 21, as we're going to see, is a pretty confusing, out there kind of passage. It's a pretty lengthy passage. It's also got a lot of language about kind of stars, like stars falling from the sky and wars happening. And it seems to be talking about a whole bunch of events that we might look at and think, what on earth is this talking about? But I think this is a really important passage that we actually do look at. And I think it's got a lot to teach us. And we're going to see why in a little bit. But what has happened in the lead up to this is that Jesus has been preaching to, uh, within, within the land of Israel. He's come along and he is preaching that God is coming back to reign as king. So you reach the end of the Old Testament and uh, the story of Israel, essentially. And the question we have is, is God going to return to his people? They're left in a state where they're thinking, we have no hope. We have no king reigning on the throne. It doesn't look like God's presence with us. What's going to happen and 400 years after the end of the story of the Old Testament, so a lot goes on between the two Testaments, but nothing majorly dramatic in terms of God returning to his people. But in about 0 AD, we see Jesus born, and the gospel writers are trying to tell us this man is the one who is going to bring God back to his people. And so we see Jesus starting to preach about the fact that the God is coming back to reign as king, that he's going to rule, that he's going to have all authority and power. We see him going around healing the sick, preaching the good news. And little by little, he's making his way towards Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel at the time. And he's, he's making his way there because he has a mission to do in Jerusalem. His mission is to go there and to die for the sins of his nation and for the sins of the world and to be raised from the dead. And uh, so this is the king of Israel, Jesus. And he comes into Jerusalem, as we saw a few months back, the kind of the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. He comes in to Jerusalem. And the tragedy is that although he was welcomed and cheered on that Sunday, most of the nation of Israel are going to reject their king. It's one of the tragedies that we see in the gospel is Jesus is coming as the king of Israel to the capital of Israel and most of Israel reject him. And so that's why if you, like Simona preached, I think the last, uh, the last um, sermon on this particular series and she was talking about a chapter, which is chapter 20, the chapter before we're going to look at today, where Jesus is having lots of arguments with some of the religious leaders in the temple. And essentially Jesus has come and he is confronting the leaders of Israel who have rejected him. And he's saying, you've missed it. You have missed the fact that God is coming back to reign as king in and through me. And because you're rejecting me, bad stuff's going to happen. We're going to look at some of that bad stuff today. But as I said, you might read this passage, and when we read it, you may well feel like, what relevance does this passage have for us in the 21st century? 
It seems to talk about a lot of weird ideas. It seems to spend a lot of time talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is actually something that happened 40 years after Jesus' ministry. So you think, well, what relevance does this have for us in the 21st century? And I think this has a huge amount of relevance for us. I think number one, it shows us that what Jesus predicted actually came to pass. If someone predicts that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed within a generation and that actually happens, you tend to start listening to that person. There's, a, there's a, 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 a credibility that he has as a result of this. But another thing is, even when it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, a lot of the lessons that we learn that Jesus tells us are applicable all the way throughout our Christian lives. So the kind of things that the early church, and particularly the early church in Jerusalem, would have been facing in the lead up to its destruction, actually are lessons that we can learn 2,000 years later. But finally, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus doesn't just look at the destruction of Jerusalem in this passage. He also looks beyond it to say there's a day coming where the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to return in glory and is going to put all wrongs right. And ultimately, the destruction of Jerusalem is one event in the lead up to that major event. And so that's one of the reasons why this passage is immensely relevant to us. So we're going to read this. I'm going to read the whole chapter. So it's chapter 21, verses 1 to 38, and then we're going to run through this together. So, chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into an offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things you see, the days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, and do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up up to the synagogue and in prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out of the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against all this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear, with the foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
And then they will see the Son of Man on a cloud with great power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And, they told, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things and, uh, that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged at the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for the fact that it is good news for us. We thank you for the fact that it nourishes our souls, that it does us good, that it teaches us, that it instructs us, that it rebukes us, that it encourages us. And Father, we pray that your word would have its effect in our hearts today and that Jesus would be honored and Jesus would be glorified more and more in our lives and that we would love him more as a result of what we hear and what we hear from your word today. Amen. Amen. So Jesus has been teaching in the temple, like I said, and he's been having a load of confrontations with the leaders of Israel. And if you can stretch your mind back or perhaps go and catch up on the podcast, if you can't remember what Simona was talking about, there were um, the last time we had a sermon on Luke, there were a whole bunch of religious leaders who were having confrontations with Jesus. And this chapter ends with quite a chilling, Jesus gives quite an, a chilling assessment of the scribes who were one of the the groups of leaders of Israel. And he said that instead of obeying God and protecting the vulnerable, which is what they should have been doing as Israel's leaders, instead, this is chapter 20, verse, 20, verse 47, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And this is a really important verse to know that it comes just before the, the passage that we're looking at because it helps us understand, to, it helps understand two things. It helps us understand why, why we suddenly get in the first four verses the story of a widow who gives all of the money that she has. And it also helps us understand part of the reason why Jesus is predicting judgment coming upon Jerusalem. The leaders of Israel have failed in the time of Jesus to fulfill their duty. They are being greedy. We can all relate to hating the idea of greedy leaders, can't we? Like everyone's in uproar anytime we hear of MPs claiming expenses that they shouldn't and so on. Like corruption is the kind of thing that we look at and we think the idea of a leader living in a corrupt way is just it's unpalatable to us. And that would be the case with these leaders. They were living lavish lifestyles but neglecting those who they should have been caring for. And so it's slightly ironic that the first character we're introduced to in this passage is precisely a widow. Jesus says, you devour widows' houses. You do not care for them, which basically leads them to a point where they have nothing left. And off the back of that, we have a story of a widow who gives everything that she has in the, place of, in the, in the form of two copper coins. So we've got lots of rich people, this is verses one to four, who are giving lots of money, presumably. Many of them may have been being very generous, but they're giving lots of money. And people are presumably impressed by the amount of money they've got. If you notice, that actually is still the case nowadays. When a celebrity gives a large amount of money, I think people are very impressed. If a homeless person were to put a pound in a collection box, no news articles about it. 
But Jesus looks at this situation of the rich giving lots of money and this poor widow giving two copper coins. And he says, she's given more than all of them. And the reason is, they gave out of the abundance they had. She has given out of the lack that we have. And yes, Jesus is commending her, absolutely. But remember, why is she giving out of her lack? She's giving out of her lack precisely because of some of the rich people who are oppressing her. But Jesus looks to the heart. And he says, those rich people you're looking at and you think, that's so great, the scribes are so generous. I'm going to tell you that woman's heart is far more generous than them. And I think there's an encouragement for us here, particularly with the, the gift day coming up, to remember that God sees our heart. And that can, that can cut two ways, really. It can cut against those of us who feel, yeah, you know what, I, I feel I can afford to give a, a, a decent amount without it, without it really impacting my standard of living so much. And it cuts against us where it says, actually, is that true generosity? Or is that just giving in a way that doesn't cause you any kind of discomfort? So it swings one way, but it also swings the other way. And there will be a number of you here today who, when the gift day comes along, you may be wrestling with a sense of guilt. Where you think, I wish I could give more. This is costing me a lot to give. I wish I could give more. This is not impressive. This will not come up as one of the big figures on the, on the bank statement when, it, when, when the bank gets the bank statement out. Am I really being generous? And Jesus looks at you and he says, yes, you are. You are giving more than all of the ones who have given loads of money, but yet who had thousands and thousands and thousands to spare. And so there's a challenge and an encouragement there. It cuts both ways. For those of us who actually, we look at what we, what we want to give perhaps next week and we think, that's not going to cost me at all, really. It looks like a lot of money on paper, but it's not going to cost me. And Jesus would say, I'm not after the amount of money. I'm after, do you have a heart to be generous? And it cuts the other way. For those of us who are thinking, I don't have much. I feel inadequate with what I'm giving. Jesus says, I see the heart. Just like this widow, I see that you are being generous. And I feel like God wants to encourage those of you who would find yourself in that situation. Say, God sees the heart. The amount you give, to a certain, there's, a, there's a song by a guy called Stuart Townend, which I think has got a great line. It says, not what you give, but what you keep is what the Lord is counting. I think that's quite a challenging line. It's actually, Jesus looks at the widow and he says, she's given more because of what was left. And so there's a challenge there, but it also helps us understand why is it that the verses that we have afterwards appear as well? Why is it that we suddenly then go from a widow giving money to Jesus predicting the destruction of Jerusalem? And part of the reason is the widow is in this situation of poverty precisely because the leaders of Israel have failed in their duty to take care of her. And as a result of that, the judgment that we read about in verses 5 to 38 is going to take place. So off the back of this story, some of Jesus... So we're picking up now about verse 5. Some of Jesus' followers start looking at the temple. Remember, they're in the temple. They're probably just coming out of it. And they're saying, look at this. In fact, maybe we could have the slide of a picture of the temple up on the screen. So obviously, we don't have a photo of it because it's now no longer, um, no longer standing. But that is, if you can get a bit of a sense of the scale of it, we are, like, you can see the little people walking around there. It was huge. It was absolutely gigantic. And so the disciples are walking around saying, this temple's amazing. Now remember, the temple is the place where God's presence is meant to dwell amongst his people. So this wasn't just an impressive building, even though it was impressive. It was the center of worship for the whole of Israel. And Jesus hears them saying this, and he says in verse 6, As for these things that you see, the days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, I don't think we quite grasp how shocking that would be to say. 
because we don't have the temple with us anymore. And to a certain extent, most of us here, I would imagine, are probably not from a Jewish background. Most of us are probably non-Jewish Christians. And so the idea of the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 AD for us is like, well, it happened, but why make a big deal and a whole chapter out of it? Maybe something that might bring it back home is it's probably the equivalent of before 9-11 saying, you do realize that there's a time coming very soon when those twin towers will have airplanes rammed into them and they're going to fall. And the heart of financial America is going to crumble in one go. That's the kind of thing that the disciples are hearing in that moment. They're saying, you're saying what? Jesus is saying there's a day coming, very soon actually, where this house is going to be completely destroyed. This temple will be destroyed. And that happened in 70 AD. The Romans came along and they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and completely obliterated the temple. And so the disciples, obviously, they're presumably quite concerned. They ask in verse 7, like, when is this going to happen? And how will we know when it happens? So they ask for a sign. Okay, so it's a little bit like when you look out the window and check the weather, which at the moment seems to always be raining. But let's say we lived in a place where it wasn't constantly raining. You'd look out the window and you think, what's the weather going to be like today? And you see some, some clouds on the horizon. That is a sign that there might be rain coming. And so the disciples are asking, is there some stuff that's going to happen that's going to help us realize that the destruction of Jerusalem is coming? And Jesus says, yes, they are. There are some signs. But he explains in verses 8 to 11 that there are a number of things that have to take place that make it look like Jerusalem is about to fall. Okay, did you notice? So in verses 8 to 11, he talks about people coming in his name, saying, I am he, or the, the time is at hand. He's saying that there will be people who come in the years and the months and the years to come who will, be, who will claim to be the Messiah. And there were a lot of people who did at the time claim to be the Messiah. Presumably, there will also be some people who claim to be Jesus having come back. Interestingly, we still get a number of people of those nowadays. A lot of people claiming, I am, I am Jesus and I have come back. And Jesus says, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Don't be led astray. Don't be led astray by speculative people saying, I have come to deliver Israel. It's not true. He also says that there's going to be wars and earthquakes there's going to be rumors of wars. People, like his disciples are going to hear of wars going on in distant countries. And what Jesus says here is, these things must happen, but that does not mean the end is going to happen immediately. He's saying there are lots of things that are going to take place, but that does not mean that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, nor does it mean that the end of the world is about to happen. Jesus says, don't get terrified whenever you hear of anything going on in the world, like wars happening and political chaos happening. And I think this is majorly relevant to us nowadays. Uh, to be honest, it's relevant to every generation of Christians. And I think one of the things that's helpful about reading a bit of church history is you realize that every generation tended to see the big political events that were going on in their day as the sign that Jesus was about to return. And I think Jesus would probably say to us, don't be terrified by everything that goes on on the news. Don't be terrified for a couple of reasons. One, Jesus is saying, don't, don't speculate. Like you've got no guarantee that the political decision that has just been made means that Jesus is going to return in a week. But another thing is, actually, there's nothing for us to fear. When we see wars and chaos going on, we don't need to fear in that moment. Jesus says, do not be terrified. Don't turn on the news and feel that sense of dread of oh, what are we going to do? Some of you may feel that way about Brexit. Some of you may not feel that way about Brexit. Let's not get terrified about it. Let's say God's still on the throne. Jesus is coming back one day. These things must take place. 
There are things that will happen all around the world that must take place under the sovereign control of God, but we have to make sure that we don't either waste our time getting terrified about it or that we waste our time coming up with very detailed charts of when Jesus is going to come back and actually fail to live the life that Jesus wants us to in the first place. And so Jesus says all of these things must happen, but that doesn't mean either that Jerusalem is actually just about to be destroyed or that the end of the world is coming. And then what he does is he says, before all of this happens, here are some things that are going to happen to you. So he speaks to his disciples at this point. And again, I think we can apply these to us. Verse 12, he says, But before this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up in their synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And then verse 16, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Following Jesus, whether you are a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem in the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem, or whether you are a non-Jewish Christian in the 21st century, means you will face rejection. We will face opposition. We will face persecution. And Jesus is telling us this here. He's saying some of them will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They'll deliver you up to your synagogues. Unlikely to happen in our culture, but would have happened in those days. They are brought into the synagogues, and the synagogue leader says, why are you preaching Jesus? Stop preaching Jesus, otherwise we're going to beat you. And inevitably, they got beaten. Some of you will be brought before kings. We see the apostle Paul being brought before Caesar. We see many Christians throughout history taking their stand in front of the most powerful people of the day, saying, I will not and cannot deny Jesus and paying the ultimate price for it. It even hits families. Some of you will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. We must not be surprised if we start facing opposition, even by those who are closest to us. And this might sound heavy, and in a sense it is. I think Jesus is warning so that the disciples are not caught off guard when it happens. Because to be rejected by your family for following Jesus is a pricey thing. It takes its toll. And so Jesus is saying, don't be unaware, this is coming your way. However, there are two things that help us in the midst of that. And Jesus tells us, first of all, that in these moments where you're drawn in front of authorities and questioned, what does he say? He says, this will be your opportunity to witness. It's like use the moment where you are being dragged in front of a court for following Jesus to bear witness to the good news. And that idea of telling people about Jesus, even when they are the ones who are rejecting us, is incredibly powerful. It's hugely powerful. When, when people testify and explain that Jesus is God and Jesus is good in their lives, even when they are going through rejection and difficulty, that has a power in terms of the way it impacts people, that sometimes just telling people about Jesus when everything's going well doesn't. And so I don't know how many of us here will be actively facing rejection or opposition at the moment, but a number of us will definitely be facing difficult circumstances. Can I encourage you, in those difficult circumstances, whether that is rejection in the workplace or at school, and you're being faithful to Jesus at school, and you're thinking, this is costing me friendships, or you've got a really difficult health condition, and you're thinking, how on earth am I going to be able to be faithful to Jesus with this? What's, what's this going to look like? Can I encourage you, whatever difficult moment you're going through, think, how can I witness to Jesus in the midst of this? How can I tell people about the goodness of Jesus despite what I'm going through? But then the second bit of good news is that we are ultimately protected. There's this really weird contrast. If you look in verses 17 and, and 18, uh, 17 and 18, you will be hated for all by my name's sake. And just before he said that some of you will be put to death 
Verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. What? Some of you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. Does that mean that they're going to kill you in a way that there's no hair that falls out? It's, that doesn't make sense. But what Jesus is doing here is saying, even if they kill you, and in many places in the world, many thousands of people do pay the ultimate price for following Jesus, they cannot ultimately be defeated. Even death cannot defeat us if we are followers of Jesus. And that's a huge encouragement. In moments where we face pressure, in moments where we face rejection, and in those most intense moments of suffering and persecution, where we say, even if I die, I don't lose. You cannot lose, even by death, as a follower of Jesus. And so let's be those who are faithful as we, as we witness, even in the dark times. And I, can I just say that some of the examples of people in this room who are living faithfully to Jesus and demonstrating that in the midst of really difficult times is a privilege to see. It's a privilege to be involved in. It's a privilege to see you as you're going through some tr difficult trial times of your life, remaining faithful to Jesus and putting him first. People will notice that. People will see that. People will see that. They will. And there are a number of people who will be in this room because they have been influenced by someone who faithfully lived for Jesus in the midst of difficulties. And you will know who you are if you're here. You say, I, I, I had to come to church. I had to find out what this was about because this person that I was spending time with was going through the worst time of their life, but yet they loved Jesus. And I needed to find out what that looked like. And so be encouraged as we go through difficulties. So Jesus has told people, he's told his disciples what, will what has to happen but doesn't necessarily immediately show that the end's going to come. And he tells his disciples, you're going to suffer, you're going to face persecution, but ultimately you're safe. And now he explains, when you see Jerusalem, verse 20, surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. In other words, Jesus is warning his disciples in a very practical way here. So there was, there was a church in Jerusalem. Okay, well, after Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, there was a church in Jerusalem and because Jesus gave them this warning, in the, uh, in the late 60s AD, the Christians in Jerusalem fled the city because they saw the Romans coming. And so Jesus is saying, there's destruction coming. When you see armies approaching Jerusalem, run away. Don't think, oh, it's fine. Jerusalem's secure. We're not going to die. It is going to get destroyed. Run away. He's given them some really practical advice. But he also explains why this happened. And he says in verse 22, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So he's saying destruction is going to come upon Jerusalem. The temple's going to be destroyed. And when you see the Roman army coming, don't feel like you can just stay. Run. Run for your lives. And that is exactly what the Christians did. And a lot of non-Christian Jews stayed shut up in the city thinking we can beat the Romans. And inevitably, they ended up being slaughtered. It's awful. It's an awful time. But Jesus explains why this is happening. And he says, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Israel had done two things, and we've seen what those are. The leaders of Israel, as Jesus had accused them in the previous chapter, had failed to lead in the way that they should have. But Israel as a whole had rejected their king. Jesus had come triumphant, and within a few days, he's being crucified by the Romans because he's being handed over by the Jewish authorities. And so Jesus... As, a, as the Jewish king is saying, you have rejected your king and therefore God is going to bring judgment upon the city. And so in 70 AD, when the Romans came along and destroyed the city, that was actually part of God's judgment, 
saying, my people were meant to be faithful to the outcasts, faithful to those who are oppressed. They were meant to have leaders who would shepherd them well. And instead, what they've got are people who are corrupt and who don't want to take care of the poor and the lonely. There comes a point where God's patience runs out and God's patience ran out and he brought judgment in the form of Roman invasion. Now, you might immediately be thinking, how does that apply to our lives? Well, I think what I want to do here, we're going to talk a little bit later about the fact that this also hints at the fact that there's a day coming where a similar kind of judgment happens to the whole of humanity. But at this stage, one thing I'll say is, don't take this and then map it onto every single bad thing that you see happening around the world or in your life and say, if I'm ill at the moment, that must mean that God is judging me. Or if that nation is currently going through war at the moment, that must mean that they're particularly evil. I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. We are told explicitly here in the word of God that judgment was brought upon Jerusalem because of their rejection of Jesus. We are not explicitly told for every situation that goes on in life or every situation that goes on around the world that this is happening because such a nation has rejected God or so on. So I think at this stage, I just want to say, let's be careful about not assuming that everything bad that goes on in the world is God bringing judgment because of the different people's sins. Because at the end of the day, we're all in the same boat. The whole world is in the same boat. We have all rejected God. And so we have, just have to be careful in that front. So God, is, God will bring destruction on Jerusalem, and he did that in 70 AD. But then Jesus starts looking further into the future. And this is where it really starts getting exciting for us. So we can take lessons from the destruction of Jerusalem. We can learn how to live our lives in the present. But Jesus then looks further into the future. And in, uh, in verses 25 to 28... He says, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and, the earth, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is to come upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is near. Jesus is saying, after the destruction of Jerusalem, there's a day coming where you will see the Son of Man, which is a way of Jesus referring to himself, coming on the clouds with great power and great glory. And when you read this passage at kind of at speed, you might be mistaken for thinking that Jesus is saying, Jerusalem will be destroyed and immediately I'm going to return. And actually that's because sometimes the way that prophecy is written in the Bible is a little bit like, have you ever, anyone gone skiing here before? and driven kind of up into the mountains. Yeah, do you know you get, you get the foothills initially, don't you? And you come around a corner and you, and you suddenly see this giant range of snow-capped mountains in front of you. And you think, oh my goodness, they look like they're just there. They look like they're basically, you, like you've got the foothills in front and it looks like the mountains are just maybe a few meters behind. And so you start driving up these hills and driving up and driving up. You go over the top of the first hill. And you drive up again, drive up the next one, and over the top. And it still looks like the mountains are the same distance as they were. And that's sometimes the way that predictions and prophecies work in the Bible. That as you look at the mountain range and the first hills actually would correspond here to the destruction of Jerusalem. And in the passage, it looks like it immediately Jesus' return immediately happens after. But as you step to the side, you realize that the foothills are actually quite a long way from the mountain range. And the return of Jesus is the mountain. The return of Jesus is what it's all about. The return of Jesus is the day that every, the whole of creation is looking forward to. And the destruction of Jerusalem is an event in the lead up to that. A major event, but an event in the lead up to that. And so Jesus 
wants people to realize the destruction of Jerusalem is not the be-all and end-all of the world, which would have been very important for the early Jewish Christians to hear. Actually, there's a day coming where Jesus is going to return and the whole world is going to see it. Whatever Jesus means by the idea of the heavens shaking, the stars falling from heaven, whether that's literally what happens or whether it's a picture to talk about something cataclysmic, everyone will see the return of Jesus. So if someone comes, comes to you and says, hey, Jesus has come back secretly, don't believe them. Jesus will return in glory. He will return on the clouds with great power, great glory, and all of the, all of the world will see him. And there will be two different reactions when that day happens. One reaction is we're told in verse 25 to 26, which is, well, sorry, in, in 26 particularly, people will faint with fear because of, with foreboding of what is to come on the world. So some people will see the return of Jesus and they will melt with fear in that moment because they suddenly realize, I have spent my life living in opposition to this person and I know that that cannot be a good thing now that I see him. And if that's you and you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you may have been coming along a church and you're very welcome. We love having you here. But you would say in your heart, actually, I haven't given my life over to Jesus. I think Jesus is here to encouragingly, gently warn you and say, just as he warned the, the Christians in Jerusalem, when you see the Roman armies run out, he wants to say to you, don't wait until it's too late to run for refuge in Jesus. Don't wait till it's too late. How do you flee from the judgment that is going to come upon the world when Jesus comes? You run to Jesus. Jesus says, in fact, this is a bit earlier in Luke's gospel. He's talking about, again, he's, he's talking about Jerusalem at this point, but the lesson helps us here. In uh, chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus wait, laments. He's sad for the fact that judgment's going to come upon Jerusalem. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Some versions say you were not willing. Jesus says, I, he's speaking of Jerusalem at that point. He's saying, I wish that you would repent. I, I would love it if you stopped oppressing the poor and you returned to me. I would welcome you, but you've refused to. And I think Jesus would want to say the same thing, gently, lovingly, with tears in his eyes, to those of us here today who would say, actually, I'm, I'm not a follower of Jesus, and to be honest, my life doesn't honor God. He would say, with tears in his eyes and with affection in his voice, please, flee to me. Run to me. Put your trust in me. Trust me, I will deliver you from that judgment, and I will deliver you into amazing eternal life, which we're going to look at in a minute. So if that's you, and you would love to find out more, and think, like, I, I want to find out, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What do I, what do, I do to start following Jesus? Then we've got some cards on the tables in front of you. And uh, later on, as we're kind of responding or, uh, or, or milling around, please feel free to leave your contact details. Um, and we would love to get in touch with you and just to be able to help you in this process of finding out whether you want to follow Jesus. But Jesus is calling you and says, please run away from that judgment. My desire is not that you face it. My desire is that you would be rescued from it. But you need to take refuge in me for that. And what's the response of the disciples? The disciples' response is not, have your hearts melt with fear. The disciples' response, or the response that Jesus says for his disciples is, when that happens, um, sorry, I'm in the wrong part of the passage here. 
Verse 28, now when these things, in other words, when my return begins to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because you know your redemption is near. Jesus is returning, and when he does, it will mean that everything wrong with the world, everything sad, everything that has ever caused tears of sadness will be undone. Absolutely everything. Death will be undone. There will be no more dying of loved ones. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more grief. There will be no more financial instability. There will be no more poverty. There will be no more evil. There'll be no more genocide. There'll be no more rape. It will all be gone because Jesus, the Prince of Peace, will come back to make all wrongs right. And so Jesus says to his disciples, when you see me returning, you don't need to cower in fear. You can lift up your heads because your rescue is coming. And so Jesus tells us, well, how then should we live in light of this? I've just got a few minutes to run through a few ways. How does this practically make a difference in our lives nowadays? Well, I think a few things that Jesus tells us here that can help us. Verse 32, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, Jesus is probably there mainly talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is something that happened before the generation he was speaking to actually passed away. So most of the people who were hearing him say that probably lived to see the destruction of Jerusalem. But the principle we get here is live as if it could happen any day. Live as if it could happen any day. In fact, uh, John Littell shared a a poem with me before the service, um, which I just thought was amazing. Amazing encouragement because it pretty much lined up exactly with what I was preaching on. I don't even know if John knew that I was preaching. He definitely didn't know that I was preaching on that. And there was this idea in that poem of if you knew you had 24 hours to live, what would you do? And like talking about the return of Jesus. And I think it's such a helpful mindset. So we, we don't live with an obsessive kind of trying to graph it out on charts and predict whether it's going to happen on, I don't know, April the 21st after breakfast. That's not the mindset I'm talking about. I'm talking about the mindset where we're on the edge of our seat saying, come Lord Jesus. One of the most common prayers in the early church was Maranatha, which is an Aramaic prayer that means our Lord come. They were desperate for Jesus to come back. Do we have that same desperation? Where we say, we want it. I want it to happen. I want to not go through a life where there's misery and despair and and sickness. And we praise God for all of the breakthrough in the midst of that. But we praise God even more for the day when none of it will exist because he's going to get rid of it all. Let's live as those who are waiting for a bus where there's no timetable. You don't go pop to the shop quickly if you're waiting for a bus where there's no timetable. You wait. You're patient. You do everything at the bus stop. Let's live lives that actually where we're saying Jesus could return any day. Jesus could return. It's going to be amazing. I want to live in light of that. And one of the ways that we do that, Jesus tells us in verse 34, is watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Jesus is saying, be careful, because as you go through life, there will be lots and lots of things that can weigh you down. Lots and lots of anxieties and cares of things that kind of hustle for your attention. Where you think, oh, financially, I'm not doing too well at the moment. How am I, oh, I going to do this? Is God going to come through on this? Or there might be like, ah, housing-wise, how's that going to work? I've kind of, to be honest, I've experienced this this week. So I got, got ill this week, and um, we've just bought a house. Praise God for that breakthrough. I think Beck shared earlier when I was trying to settle Zoe and Pips. Um, but with that comes a heck of a lot of work that needs doing to it. 
And it just so happened that the week I was going to start doing work to it, I got pretty ill and was unable to do quite a lot of the work. And that moment, I'm thinking, oh, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make sure that we get everything painted? How are we going to... Blah, blah, blah? And, and very quickly, I can catch myself going, wait a minute, I am getting weighed down with the cares of this life, many of which are important things, not things that we should neglect, but I can get weighed down. And actually, Jesus would want to say to us, don't get weighed down by those things. I don't know what it is for you. It might be financial situation. It might be family demands. It might be particular health challenges that you're going through. It might be particular marriage challenges that you're going, to, going through. It may be lots and lots of different stuff. For some of you, it may be large-scale political things. Some of you may be absolutely terrified about what's what will happen as a result of Brexit. Some of you may be absolutely terrified about a number of things that are happening in the Middle East. Jesus would encourage us and say, don't let your hearts be weighed down. Because at the end of the day, his return is what it's all about. Because to live life where we are weighed down like that and spending so much of our time with our attention on earthly things would be a little bit like going to the church weekend away and imagine you're camping. So for those of you who've decided to take the nice accommodation, imagine for a minute you're camping and you decide, right, I need to put some wallpaper up in my tent. I need to start painting. I need to install like, oh, we need a new gas meter in my tent. And we need a new electric box in my tent. And what lighting are we going to put up? And you think, you're there for two days. You're in a tent. You don't decorate a tent as if it was a house. And I think in the same way, let's not decorate this life as if it was the house that we're going to live in for the whole of eternity. Yeah. Nothing wrong with decorating houses. There's nothing wrong with buying places. Nothing wrong with trying to make sure you're being wise with your money. But the moment we start letting ourselves be weighed down by it, we lose sight. We start dropping our head instead of what Jesus says, which is lift up your head and know your redemption is coming. So let's live awake, as Jesus says. Let's live prayerfully. And I thought I'd just finish by... I found these words this morning. Some of you may know the, the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Brilliant, brilliant hymn. But um, there are a couple of verses at the end, which I just think are brilliant. And those of you who don't know the story, the guy who wrote this hymn, in the space of a few months, lost his son and then lost all of his daughters in a... Uh, uh, it was a, in, in a boat that sunk, and only his wife survived. And he basically hears a very quick, I, th I think it was a very quick message from his wife saying, I alone have survived. And he pens this song. And it's like, it is well with my soul, it is well. But the end of the song lifts our eyes to the future. And the last two verses saying, But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And then the final verse, and Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The, the clouds be rolled up as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even, though it is, even so, it is well with my soul. We can say, along with Horatio Spufford, who wrote this, whatever we go through, it is well with my soul because Christ is with us now and Christ will return to be with us for all eternity. So why don't we stand and I will pray and uh, we're then going to be released to go and live lives that are focused on eternity. And let's encourage one another with this. I realize we can say a lot of these things like it's so important to fix our eyes on eternity, but in reality, that's often a challenge. And that's where community and having people that you can talk, to, talk with and pray with is so helpful. We're not meant to do this journey alone. We're not meant to put ourselves on our own in our room and just muster up our strength and say, I must keep my eyes focused on eternity. Actually, we are called to encourage one another. 
So I'm going to pray for us and then hand back over to Valta as we finish. Father, we thank you, for, we thank you Father, for, for difficult passages in Scripture because, Lord, you inspired them for a reason. And we thank you, Father, for this passage of encouragement and warning that, that you are coming again and that you will return and that that is good news for those of us who follow you. And Lord God, I pray that you would instill in us by your Holy Spirit such an eternal-minded perspective, Lord God, that we would look at the future and we would say, I'm not, I'm not going to decorate my tent as if it was a house. I'm going to live my life realizing that I am here for a very limited time eternity-wise. I'm going to make my life about investing in eternity and that we wouldn't be weighed down by things. We wouldn't be weighed down by cares and anxieties of this age. But that as you encourage your followers in this passage, we would take every moment of, 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 of opposition, every moment of rejection as an opportunity to witness to your goodness, Lord God. We pray you would comfort us, who, those of us who need comforting. We pray you would challenge those of us who need challenging. And we pray we would be a church that is desperate for the day that you return. That it would be such a normal thing, Lord, just in our, in our, in our life groups, in our day-to-day -day conversations, to say, I can't wait till he returns. I can't wait till he comes back to say, this week's been really awful, but I know there's a day where it's not going to be. I can't wait for that day. I pray you'd give us an eternal perspective and that would shape the way we live in the present. And I pray, Father, for those who don't have the privilege of knowing you yet, I pray, Lord God, that you would call them to you, that they would respond to the gospel, they would respond to Jesus, and that they would come to know you, they would take refuge in him. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.